0: Well, it really is nice to see all of you this morning. And the reason it's nice to see you is, to be honest, we weren't sure anyone was going to come back after last week's message and, and the story that we covered. But in all seriousness, uh, Pastor Chris definitely did an excellent job last week in and, uh, and walking through a, and explaining a very difficult and disturbing story. And so I just want to encourage you, if you weren't here last week, if you've been going with us through the book of Judges, I, I would just encourage you to get online or get on our podcast and, and listen to that message. I think it's going to be helpful for you as you understand uh, not only the book of Judges, but just the Bible and, and the big story of what God's doing. Well, you know, this past spring when we were talking about teaching through the book of Judges as pastors, uh, one of the people we interacted with was uh, one of our church members, Corey Bakker, and And Corey very wisely suggested that if we were going to do the book of Judges... Uh, that we tag on the book of Ruth at the end of the series, and the reason that he suggested that is because the book of Ruth takes place during the same time period as the Judges, and so there's a sense in which, in order to completely teach through the book of Ruth and to be fair to, it, or I'm sorry, to teach through the book of Judges and to be fair to it, you have to also teach the book of Ruth. But the other reason or motivation to teach through Ruth is, is simply because of how depressing the book of Judges ends, right? It was terrible. Uh, and so, I mean, if you were looking for a silver lining in those last few chapters, you can forget about it. But the cool thing is, is that in the book of Ruth, we have a silver lining, and that silver lining does play into the book of Judges. And so just like how the last two weeks' sermons in the book of Judges were kind of an on-the-ground view of what life was like in Israel. And in other words, those stories weren't about specific judges. They were just two examples of, of, it was as if the author was saying, let me just show you what was the normal activity of what life was like in Israel during this period. The book of Ruth is an on-the-ground exception of what life was like in Israel. And, and it was very far from the norm, but it was the exception. And, and so, you know, I was thinking about it this week, given the fact that most of us are Americans, or at least culturally uh, American, uh, we like happy endings, right? I mean, I think that's fair to say that we like happy endings. And I think for most of us, there's nothing worse than watching a depressing movie. And then you're waiting for it to kind of get wrapped up and, and get to that happy place. And then uh, next thing you know, the credits are rolling. And and you end up thinking, wait, 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 wait. this can't be the end. I mean, everyone's dead, or, or the guy doesn't get the girl in the end, and, and we just feel ripped off. Or if you read a book, and you get to that last page, and, and you're like, wait, there's got to be more to this. And there's a sense in which you're like, I want my two hours back if it's a movie. If it's a book, maybe you're like, I want my two years back. I mean, that was terrible. <laughs> uh, if you're anything like me with reading. But um, I think that's because we like happy endings. You know, for example, my daughter Miriam, uh, who we call Mimi, uh, she's three and a half. And I don't know how they do this, but somehow all of our kids go through the exact same phases at the exact same time. And and so she's totally in that classic Disney princess phase. She thinks she's a princess. She loves to wear dresses. Uh, When we go to the library to get books, she only gets princess books Uh, When it's her turn for family movie night to pick the movie, uh, she inevitably picks a Disney princess movie. And so one of the movies she picks often is The Little Mermaid. Well, I did some digging this week, and I discovered that the Disney version was doctored up quite a bit. Uh, If you know anything about this, I, I didn't. And, and it's doctored up quite a bit from the original version in that, you know, when we watch the Disney version, uh, we get to see Ariel and her sassy crab friend Sebastian overcome the wicked sea witch. And, and then she goes off and marries Prince Eric, the man of her dreams, right? Well, in the Hans Christian Andersen's original tale, uh, it's a little bit different in that in order for Ariel to uh, be able to get legs and go on land and be with the prince, she has to drink this potion, and, and that potion allows her to get legs. But in the process, one of the side effects, you could say, is that it feels like she's walking on sharp knives at all times. And so she's just, you know, limping around. There's blood coming out of her toes. And, and, uh, and so that's, that's one of the consequences. But she decides to do it. Don't remember that in the Disney version. Um, and so in light of that sacrifice, in light of that selfless act, you would expect her to get to marry the prince, right? Well, no. And in fact, the prince actually marries someone else in the original version. And so here you have Ariel. She's in some immense pain from the potion, physical pain. She's also in emotional pain from the prince marrying someone else. And so as the story goes on, uh, you find out that she can actually reverse everything if she kills the prince. Uh, but she decides not to do that. She loves him too much. And so instead, she throws herself into the sea, upon which she becomes seafoam. And that's how it ends, my friends. (laughs) I think you and I, uh, I was thinking about it for the sake of my daughter and for millions of three-year-olds around the world. I'm really glad Disney uh, tweaked the plot there a little bit. But I think it shows and maybe even proves the point that by and large, we love happy endings. And yet as many of us have learned by now, life doesn't always have a happy ending, and maybe you were thinking, uh, as we read the book of Judges, you're right, it, it, life does not have a happy ending. Things don't always work out. But this morning, I want to try to show you that, actually, at this time in Israel's history, we really do see illustrated the principle, which I think is articulated so well in Romans 8.28. And again, that's a familiar verse to a lot of us. In fact, it was the, the theme verse of our VBS this year And Probably the theme verse for every VBS of every year that's ever existed. And there's a reason for that. It's a verse that's filled with so much hope. It gives us confidence in our God. And again, it's, it's familiar, but in case you don't know it, it says this. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And the reason that the book of Ruth is so cool, the reason that it's so profound, is that we get to see this principle illustrated in a real life, in a story. We get to see that God is always at at work, regardless of how bad things are, regardless of how wicked a culture becomes, regardless of how much sin infects our world, there is God. He's at work. Sometimes His hand and His work is very obvious, and we, we can point to that, or we see a miracle and we say, look, God's at work. Other times, though, it's a little more behind the scenes like in our story this morning. And so there is God just working His plan of intervention, or His plan of redemption, excuse me. He's proving His faithfulness. And so with that as kind of an introduction to our story this morning, let's pray and then we're going to jump into this amazing story in the Word of God. Father, we are so thankful that You were on the throne this morning. Father, we're so thankful that You... Even in the darkest of times, Lord, you're there, your hand is evident, you're, you're working your plan of redemption, Lord, and we trust you for that even in our world today. And so, Father, I just pray you guide our time this morning, would you make the word of God come alive to us in our hearts? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, for your son's glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, if you go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Ruth, uh, it's the very next book after Judges. Uh, I didn't, we're going to try to cover the whole book this morning, and so I didn't, uh, and and I was trying to be generous to the PowerPoint guy, and so I didn't have them do that. And so you're going to need to look at a Bible. And and so if you didn't bring one, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. If you're using our pew Bible, it's found on page 222. And so again, we're not going to read every verse, but we are going to try to cover the whole story here. And so starting in verse 1, it says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malion and Kileon. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, These took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years and then both Malion and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay, so the first thing to note here is that the context in which this story takes place. It tells us uh, right off the start that it's in the days when the judges ruled. But we should also note here that it tells us that there was a famine in the land. And again, if you'll remember back to this summer as we've been sharing in the book of Judges, one of the things that we've said over and over again and pointed out is that before Israel went into the promised land, God, he kind of pulled him aside and he said, look, if you guys obey me, if you follow me and me alone, then I'm going to pour so much blessing on you that you're never going to have to worry about anything. But in that same chapter, he he also warns me, he says, but if... If you disobey me, if you reject me and follow other gods, then there will be all kinds of curses brought upon you. And so as we saw over and over again in the book of Judges, the people consistently rejected Yahweh and worshipped false gods. And so it should not surprise us that we're told that in these days there was a famine in the land, because that's exactly what God said would happen if they disobeyed. And so we learn that because of the famine that that this guy named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, they they leave Israel and they head to the foreign nation of Moab. And one of the ironic things here in the story is that they flee Bethlehem, which in the Hebrew means the house of bread. And they flee the house of bread because there's no bread there. There's no food. And then we're told in verse 3 that Elimelech dies and that the two sons then marry Moabite women. But then sometime after that, the two sons die as well. And so now you have Naomi, and she's left with nothing but her two foreign daughter-in-laws. And so this story's already off to a great start, right? And you know, I was thinking about it this week. I, I so wish that I could erase your guys' memories, your Bible knowledge, except for the book of Judges. Because I think we're so familiar with this story, I think we lose some of the surprise with it. But I just want you to try as best as you can. Get your minds and your emotions into this moment. I mean, think about the story from last week. And think about how women were treated during this period. And if you could just, again, forget what you know about the book of Ruth and just get into that. Okay, here's these uh, three women who are now widows in this time period where, where where men consistently fail and they compromise. And women are mistreated. And then take that into this story. Again, here you have this Israelite woman. Her husband has died. Her two sons have died. And she, here she is living in this terrible period of history. And so again, on the surface, it doesn't seem like things are going to end well for these women. Well, in verse 6, Naomi heads back to Israel, back to Bethlehem, because she has heard through the grapevine that Yahweh has visited his people and provided them with food. And so she heads back there and and somewhere along the way she kind of stops between Moab and and Bethlehem. And and it tells us in verse 8 that that she said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And so after that, both daughter-in-laws, they kind of fight it. They're like, no, we, we won't do it. We're sticking with you. And Naomi persists. She keeps telling them to go. And so one of them, Orpah, gives in. She leaves. She heads back home. But then at the end of verse 14, we read, But Ruth clung to her. And then in verse 15, we read this. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. And so we see here Naomi give one final push, one final plea to try to convince Ruth to leave her. And actually Naomi is being kind here. Because the, self, the selfish thing to do would be to keep Ruth and to keep Orpah with her. Because that's an extra set of hands. That's, a, that's someone to take care of her when she's older because she has no one left. And yet she's being kind. She's trying to urge her to go. She says, follow your sister-in-law who's gone back after her people and back after her gods. And yet Ruth emphatically and very beautifully tells her no. She essentially says, look, Naomi, I'm sticking with you and with your God no matter what. And so this here, many scholars have said this is basically Ruth's conversion. This is her her coming to faith in, in Yahweh, the true God. I mean, we don't know where she was at spiritually before this time. But we know for certain now that she believes in and trusts Yahweh and therefore chooses to follow him instead of her native gods. And then in verse 19, we read this. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which in Hebrew sounds like the word sweet. She said, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And so the chapter, chapter 1 ends, things do not look good. These two women are widows, and therefore they're extremely vulnerable. And so starting in chapter 2, we read this. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Hmm, that's, that's an interesting tidbit. Verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Well, a couple of interesting things to know here. First, uh, right in verse 1, the narrator of the story gives us kind of a heads up, a, a little side note. Uh, they tell us that Naomi has this relative named Boaz and, and that he's a, he's a worthy man. And then it jumps back into the story in verse 2. And it, it says the second thing that we see that's interesting is that we see God, that he has this plan and provision for the poor and for widows and for foreigners. And you know, Ruth, she checks all three of those boxes. She's poor. She's a widow. She is a foreigner to Israel. You see, back in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God laid out very specific instructions on how Israel was to treat the poor. And again, the widows and foreigners. And basically what the law said was that farmers were supposed to only go through their fields once when they were harvesting. And so if they missed some or if they dropped some on the way out, they weren't to go back and get them. They were to leave them for the poor. The other rule was that they were not to glean or harvest all the way to the edges of the field. And and they were to leave the corners of the field untouched. And so we see that this really amazing thing. we, We get to see God's heart and God's plan for providing for the most vulnerable in society. And the cool thing about his plan is that he he wants to provide for them through the generosity of others, through the generosity of his people. And as, again, my friend Corey Bakker has pointed out, he says, the law doesn't specifically tell you how big those corners have to be. And yet it, it is a law that needs to be obeyed. Everyone in Israel was expected to obey this. And yet it really was based on each person's generosity. And so there's a sense in which you could say and even argue that the bigger the corners, the bigger the heart. And so that's, that is amazing just to see God's heart for the poor. And then the last interesting thing here in these, these first verses is that uh, it tells us that, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, speaking of Ruth, that she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And so one question here, what are the chances or the odds that Ruth just so happened to stumble upon the one part of the field that belonged to someone who was a part of her father-in-law's family? I think the short answer to that is slim to none. I, I think the narrator is playing with us. And in fact, one commentator wrote this. He said, one can imagine the narrator winking at the reader as he was highlighting God's sovereign control over human affairs. And by reflecting Ruth's perspective, he showed this encounter with Boaz was not something Ruth or Naomi engineered. From Ruth's perspective, she randomly picked a field, but God was steering her to the right one. And so let's keep going. Verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. So from this time, you know, from the time we meet Boaz, from the time he opens his mouth, we get to see his faith and his love for God and his love for others. I mean, you know, I I work at a church here, but when I walk in, you know, Pastor Chris isn't like, the Lord be with you. And I'm like, no, 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 the Lord bless you. And yet, again, I work at a church and we don't do that. But here Boaz is doing it with his workers. It's amazing. Verse five. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Okay, so Boaz, he, he looks up. He, after his greeting to his fellow workers, he looks up and he sees this woman that he doesn't recognize. And so he asks one of his workers, he says, who is this woman? And, and the guy's like, well, it's Naomi's daughter-in-law, the Moabite. And he's like, yeah, she's been here all day working hard. I mean, she only took a, a, a short break. And so we fast forward a little bit and Boaz goes up to her and, and he says to Ruth, he's like, look, don't go to any other field to glean. I want you to stay here and I want you to stay close to my other female workers and just so you know, I've, I've talked to all the young men around here, and I've, I've basically threatened them not to touch you or to bother you. And so I want you to stay here, Ruth, because I'm protecting you. And by the way, when you get thirsty, we've already got some water drawn, so go ahead and help yourself. And so at the sound of all of this kindness, at the sound of all of this generosity, Ruth falls to her face, and, and she says, Why are you being so kind to me, since I am a foreigner? And then in verse 11, Boaz replies by saying, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found... Favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Verse fourteen. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, he said, Come here and eat some of the bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and, and they he passed her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. And do not reproach her, and also pull some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and she said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. I just love this section because we get to see this insane circle and this insane cycle of kindness and blessing. Ruth says to Boaz, why are you being so kind? He's like, I'm being kind because of how kind you were to your mother-in-law. And then in verse 12, he, he prays this prayer of blessing over her. And she responds by saying, wow, you're just so kind. And then after that, he invites her to eat with him and his workers, so much so that she's stuffed and has food left over. And then he tells his workers to let her glean even where she's not supposed to. And so Boaz here has gone well above and beyond what the law expected and required of him. And so Ruth finally heads home and, and Naomi kind of is like, well, how did it go today? And Ruth's like, you'll never believe this, Naomi. I met this really nice man today. His name's Boaz. And at the sound of his name, you could just see Naomi's eyes getting big. Boaz, I, I've heard that... I, I think at a family reunion once I met this guy named Boaz, and so at the sound of that Naomi speaks blessing over Boaz, and then she tells Ruth. She says, "Look, this man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers." And before we move on, we need to flesh out this idea of a redeemer. And basically, here was the deal: back in those days, if if you were in debt, if if you're pro- if you had to if you were in debt and you had to sell your property to pay off that debt. You had the right to buy it back at any time. You just had to have the money. However, another thing that could happen is that a family member could do it for you, and that person was called a kinsman redeemer. And in order to do this, the, the, the kinsman redeemer just had to be the closest living relative who was willing to do this. But he also acted, So he had to have the right, number one, but he also actually had to have the resources, or in other words, he had to have the money to be able to do it. So he had to have the right and he had to have the resources. But number three, he had to have the resolve. In other words, he had to actually want to do it. He had to have the desire to do it. And so this idea of a kinsman redeemer is really, it's a really important concept in the Bible and specifically here in the book of Ruth. And so once Naomi and Ruth realize all, realize all this, Naomi begins in chapter 3 to plan or to plot or, or you might even argue to scheme. And for whatever reason, when I read this section, the the song Matchmaker, Matchmaker, Make Me a Match, (laughs) Fiddler on the Roof, anybody tracking with that? So Naomi tells Ruth, and she's like, look, Ruth, Boaz is going to be winnowing, and and, uh, he's going to be winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a shower, and I want you to put on a new dress, change your clothes, and I want you to go where Boaz is sleeping, and when he, or where he's going to be, and when he falls asleep, I want you to go and uncover his feet and lie down beside him. So the story's getting a little weird here now. <laughs> uh, I didn't see that one coming. Uh, one little quick side note on this whole uncovering the feet thing. Um, scholars are really unsure exactly all that it means, and perhaps it was a, a ritual that, that got lost to history. Maybe it was very common back then, and, and it just didn't get passed down, but... but we do know a few things. It, it almost certainly was nothing sexual. So, I mean, uncovering his feet, it was probably just his feet. It didn't go any farther than that. But, uh, so it wasn't nothing sexual, but it most likely represented some sort of plea for help. Some, it was a plea for protection, and, and primarily protection and, and help through marriage. And so there's a sense in which Ruth is, is actually proposing to Boaz. And so picking the story up in verse 8, we read this. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Okay, so she startles poor old Boaz, and he kind of wakes up like startled, and who are you? And so she makes her request. He seems favorable and even surprised. And actually he interprets her request as an act of kindness towards him, because in his mind she could have gone after someone younger. And so things look good, except Boaz realizes that he's not the nearest relative. Therefore, he doesn't have first dibs on her. And so he tells Ruth, he says, look, sit tight. I'm going to get everything worked out. And he even loads her up with some more food, and he sends her back to Naomi. And then in chapter 4, we see that Boaz is true to his word. He goes to the city gate first thing, and he grabs the guy who's, who's the closest relative, and, and he says, look, man, here's the situation. Uh, your relative Naomi needs to sell some land, and, and so you're first in line. And so the guy's like, oh, oh, okay, well, yeah, I think I'll, I think I'll take that. I'll buy that. And then Boaz is like, well, actually, if you're going to do that, you have to also marry uh, her daughter-in-law, R- Ruth. And at that point, the guy starts backpedaling, like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, I don't think I really want the land. I just, you know, what? actually, forget it. You, you go ahead. You take it. And so they do this sort of weird flip-flop switch deal to kind of seal the deal. And, and uh, then in chapter 9, or I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 9, we read this. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kileon and to Malion. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malion, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Lee, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthy in Epaphrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman verse 13 So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son Then the woman said to Naomi then the women said to Naomi Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel He shall be to you a restorer of life And a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him the name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David." Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And so our story ends. Boaz is now redeemed Ruth and Naomi. Ruth goes back, uh, or Ruth goes from being a widow to a wife. Naomi goes from being bitter back to sweet from being empty back to full. And then the story ends with a genealogy. And based on the genealogy, it becomes clear why this little story, this seemingly insignificant story about one family's tragedy and triumph, why it was included in the pages of Scripture. And it's included because we find out that Ruth and Boaz were King David's great-grandparents, and more than that, they were part of Christ's lineage. And so as we stand back from this story, what are some of the lessons that we can take away from it? Well, there are probably dozens and dozens, and, and I'm sure I'm not going to do this, this beautiful book justice this morning. And, and I just want to draw out three of them. Number one, as it relates to the setting and context of the days of the judges, because remember, we, we just have come off a whole summer of, of looking at what life was like. One of the lessons I think the book of Ruth teaches us in that context is this God always preserves and keeps a remnant of true believers. See, begin, one of the astounding things about this story is that it takes place in a day and age in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And yes, that was generally true of the people in Israel. And yet this story shows us that even in a dark and wicked culture, God was still at work preserving a people. Preserving a remnant who would love Him and obey His word. And this idea of a remnant, we see that this is a theme not only here, but all throughout Scripture. In fact, the prophets in the Old Testament dealt with this idea a lot. And and, and the reason they dealt with it is because we get to see God's faithfulness to Himself And to his covenants as he preserves a people for himself. And yes, sometimes that group is small, like with Noah and his family. It's just him and his family, and it's very small. Other times, though, people misunderstand, and they think it's smaller than it actually is. Like uh, in the story with Elijah, there's this one point where he's complaining to God, and he's like, God, I and I alone am left. And God's like, look, Elijah, you're you're not the only one. I still have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so, we see this idea of a remnant all throughout Scripture. And so that's the first lesson. God always preserves and keeps a remnant of true believers. The second lesson, and again, I think it relates to the context of the judges, is this. God loves to use and honor those who are kind and generous to the poor and to the outcast. You see, there's a sense in which Boaz was just a regular guy. He was living a quiet life, he was working hard, he was keeping his head down. And yet when you step back and you think about the culture in which he lived in, and you even think about the city in which he lived in, it's crazy. The the last two stories of Judges, the one about Micah and the Levite and the idol and all of that, and then the one with the concubine, those took place just a few miles outside of Bethlehem. And so here, when you think about that context and you think about this man and the culture he lived in and you think about his acts of kindness... And his acts of generosity, they are astounding. Again, you have to remember, back in the days of the judges, the people barely had ever even heard of God's laws, let alone followed them. And yet, here is Boaz. He was not only obeying the law, but he was going above and beyond it. Through, simple, through simply being kind and generous, Boaz provided for and protected two women, who by all accounts were left for dead. And if last week's sermon was a picture and an indication of what life was like for women, then when the book of Ruth starts, you would be thinking, oh no, this is not going to uh, end well. And yet because Ruth and Naomi were clinging to God, and because Boaz was trusting and following God, and as a result was, was exhibiting kindness and generosity, because of all of that, the entire course of Ruth and Naomi's life was changed. And as we'll talk about in a moment, the entire course of human history was changed. You see, we live in a world right now where where people would tell us that as our culture gets darker and more sinful, we just need to circle the wagons. We need to protect ourselves. We need to withdraw from society to to stop engaging. And yet, Boaz doesn't do that. He keeps obeying God. He keeps being kind. He, He doesn't care what the rest of Israel is doing. And I think for you and I, as our world gets colder and darker... We as believers need to get kinder and more loving to those who don't know Jesus, not less. But see, I think there's this temptation that as, as we look around, we just see people and we think, you know what, I need to protect me and mine. And, and, and you know what, there, there's all this wickedness and all this sinfulness. And, and you know what, forget them. I'm not going to be kind anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect myself. And so I just want to ask you this morning, When was the last time you were radically kind to someone? When was the last time you were radically generous? I mean, have you ever been so kind or or so generous that somebody even looked at you funny or even questioned you? Like, man, what are you doing? You know you're getting ripped off, right? Have you ever been there? I mean, when you think about it, you know Boaz had to have had friends and family who were like, dude, what are you doing? You're giving all of your food away to this widow. I mean, she's poor. And maybe their racism and prejudice came out, and they're like, Boaz, why are you helping her? You know she's not even an Israelite. And you know she's a foreigner, right? And and you know those people steal. And yeah, if his generosity and his kindness toward her with food wasn't enough, you know they had to be thrown off when he married her someone from another country. And yet in Scripture, we see over and over again that, that our God, that this is what He cares about. He cares about the poor, the orphans, the widows, the sojourners, the foreigners, the aliens. No, not like outer space aliens, although if they exist, I'm sure He loves them as well. I mean, do you guys realize that according to the book of Ezekiel, the reason that Sodom was destroyed I mean, think about this. Why do you think Sodom was destroyed? Well, according to Ezekiel, the reason Sodom was destroyed was because of pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. But they did not aid the poor and needy. That's what Ezekiel says. That's why God God says he destroyed Sodom. And so I don't know how the Lord might want to apply this in your life today. Maybe for some of you it means getting involved with the tutoring at Whispering Oaks. I mean, what better way to live out our Christian faith than being kind and generous by tutoring some refugees? Perhaps God will want you to get involved with our food pantry or our free clinic. Or maybe He just wants you to get involved with IFI and be a conversation partner with someone who's not from here. Or perhaps it's just as simple as being kind to a Muslim neighbor or coworker. co-worker. I don't know what God will want you to do this morning, but I know This. If you are truly following hard after God, if you're pursuing the very heart of God, then He will convict you and prompt you to get involved with those in need. And look, I don't want to sit up here this morning and pretend like this is easy or pretend like this doesn't require sacrifice or that you're not going to be uncomfortable. I mean, for us introverts, we're always uncomfortable, but you're going to be more uncomfortable I mean, I remember uh, my life group a few years ago, we used to serve dinner once a month at this place called, Clinton, uh, it was the Clintonville Resource Center. And you know, for me, that was a hard thing to do. It was awkward, you know, we're serving them dinner, it's, it's, it's people who are under-resourced and, and, and low socioeconomical situations, and, and so what they would do is we would feed them dinner and then they would encourage us to get our dinner ourselves and sit down next to someone. And so I remember one of my first times there, I'd sit down next to these two men and and I am introverted, and, and I feel all this pressure to ask questions and try to have a dialogue because awkward silence, it just bothers me. And, and so I'm asking them some questions, and at one point I asked myself, well, where do you guys live? What part of town do you live on? And the one guy looks at me, he's like, well, I live in my car uh, down at such and such a park, and... My face gets red, I feel flushed, I feel like getting up and running out of the room because I felt like, how stupid am I that I here I am asking this man where he lives? And, and I, I was just uncomfortable. And so that, that's going to happen, those situations are going to happen when you get involved with people who don't live like you, who don't look like you, and who don't act like you. But I think we, the thing we see in the book of Ruth is this, that there is joy and blessing when you and I, when we follow and obey God when we are kind and generous to one another, God loves that. And He loves to honor those who obey Him in this regard. Well, one final lesson here that I saw in the book of Ruth is this. Jesus Christ is both our King and our kinsman-redeemer. You see, in that genealogy at the end of the book, it's, it's so important. But it's not important just because it shows us that uh, King David is coming. I mean, there is a sense in which it's cool that the book of Judges ends and in those days there was no king in Israel and and you're just left longing and desiring. You just feel like, ah, we need a king to save us. And so it's cool by the end of Ruth, you see the king's coming in the not so distant future. And yes, David in many ways was a great king. He loved God. He was a man after God's own heart. He led Israel to military and financial success. And yet, as you and I know, he had huge character flaws and he made some terrible, devastating choices in his life. And so, no, David was not enough. We needed someone greater. We needed a better king. You see, here's the thing. David wasn't perfect, but he got a few things right. And one of them was he had a son. And that son had a son. And that son had a son. And about 25 pregnancies later, we have Jesus Christ being born in a manger in Bethlehem. The same city where Ruth and Boaz lived, where this story took place. But here's the other thing we didn't just need a king, though. We didn't need just someone to to lead us. We actually needed a redeemer. And not just any redeemer, we needed a kinsman redeemer. You see, because you and I, we are like Ruth and Naomi. You see, because of our sin, we are poor and destitute and in debt. We need to be redeemed. You see, you and I, we have a debt that we cannot pay. No amount of good works or anything else that we could do would ever pay it off. It's too great. No, you see, we need someone richer. We need someone greater to come along. Otherwise, you and I, we are in trouble. Yes, it is true. We need a kinsman, redeemer, and thankfully, in Jesus Christ, we have him. You see, like Boaz, Jesus, he had the right to redeem us. He had, to be, he had to be our relative, right? And, and so when He took on human flesh and became like us, He earned that right to redeem us. But He also had to have the resources. He had to be actually be able to pay off our debt. And, and when Jesus Christ lived that perfect, sinless life and died on a cross, He provided the resources to pay our debt. So He had the right, He had the resources, but He also had to want to do it. He had to have the resolve. And in the Bible, we see that Jesus Christ desired and and was determined to let himself be beaten, to be mocked and to be killed naked on a tree because he loves us and he wanted to redeem us back to the Father. And so as we close this morning, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, and in other words, if you haven't taken refuge under his wings, if you've not asked him to redeem you, if you've not made him king of your heart then I want to urge you to do that this morning And you can do that by praying a simple prayer just acknowledging your need for him or after our service there will be members of our prayer team down here who would love to be able to talk with you and pray with you but I just want to urge you to do that for the rest of us we're going to transition into singing and uh, band you can go ahead and make your way forward here but as we sing these words I just want you to be thinking about Jesus Christ and I know that's always the goal I just want you to be thinking about the fact that he redeemed us. We were those poor widows on the way back to Bethlehem and Jesus Christ intervened and he bought us back. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Father, we're so thankful that the book of Judges isn't just the story. God, we're so thankful that that all along, Lord, you were working behind the scenes. All along, Lord, you we're doing what it took to, to provide a way of redemption for us. God, as the book of Judges ends, in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in his eyes, Lord. We see that there were some exceptions. There were men like Boaz, Lord, who were loving you and were following your word, Lord. And we pray that we would be those exceptions in our culture. God, we pray that we would be faithful, that we would uh, work hard, we'd keep our heads down, Lord. We'd, we'd, we'd engage culture. But Lord, to do that, we need your help. God, I pray that you would help us to, to, to grow more kind, to be more generous, not less. Lord, I pray you would help us to, to engage those who, who don't know you, Lord, by being kind and generous, Lord. We don't want to be ones who just point fingers and condemn, Lord. We want to be ones who, who get our hands dirty, who, who provide for people who are in need, both physically and emotionally and, and spiritually, Lord. So God, would you do that work in our heart this morning? Holy Spirit, would you apply these things to our life? And Father, we thank you for this offering. We thank you for how you have been so generous to us. Lord, we ask that you would take these tithes and offerings and you would use them to expand your kingdom around this city and around the world. It's in your son Jesus' name. Amen.